Dumping once. Now throwing long down the left side. Slaughter has it. He's going in for a touchdown. The Browns have won the game. Throwing deep down the left side. Slaughter is open. He got the ball. My DBM brothers and sisters, I'm a Browns fan. Watching this team from a safe distance, you are listening to Straight No Chaser. I'm your host, Aloni7, bringing it to you like Danny Shelton on the DBN Network. You know, as a fan of this team, I've been hurt by the constant losing. It gets hard to digest, which is one reason why I so appreciate the work of Easy Week. I mean, he sits there week after week and churns through soul-crushing information, trying to get some perspective and make any meeting out of a 1-in-25 start to this regime. And I'm a Browns fan, and it's not easy for anybody to absorb this level of futility. But at the same time, as a commenter, I would say there might not be a more compelling case study than that of the Cleveland Browns organization. I mean, over the last few weeks, and it's been a couple weeks since I've been able to get back behind the microphone, but over the last few weeks, these storylines have been completely uh, bizarre, almost to the point of being dumbfounded. I mean, I really get, didn't get a chance to put a, a bow on that bi-week debacle, which I'll, I'll touch on a bit in this show. But, I mean, really, could you name another team with this level of intrigue? I mean, it's, in my opinion, it's better than the Cowboys. This is such a rich field of information. There's so much going on. And really, at so many different levels. But what seems most interesting to me uh, is the power structure of this Cleveland Browns organization. Now, me personally, in my personal life, my professional life, I've been a part of a lot of organizations, uh, some public, some private, some nonprofit. You know, all of these groups have sort of a flow chart which kind of describes who has power and who is subordinate to whom. In every case, these structures are articulated to allow power to be exerted from the top down so that one cat can control a myriad of interests beneath him or her. At the same time, these interests should have a way to express their dissatisfaction to the people who are above them in this chain of command, as they call it. And even in the most stable and in the best organizations, this is always going to be kind of a problem. There's going to be a disconnect between people who actually do the grunt work in the organization and the people who have the power at the top who are seeking to guide the organization on a longer view and with clearly different interests than the people who are actually doing the grunt work. Generally, the structure of these organizations assure that you rarely hear about these discrepancies. Problems that happen in the cauldron, where there's a lot of stress, a lot of losing, like within the Browns factory of sadness, that's where there's anger and righteous indignation coming in. And when there's a lot of anger and righteous indignation, that's when you learn about what the structure is actually doing. The big takeaway that I've learned from the events, which I've labeled uh, the deadline drama, is that if we don't already know, uh, we get it now. At the top of the Browns organizational structure and the decision-making uh, 
prowess within the football organization, the football decision-making process structure, it's Jimmy Haslam. He is the reason that the organization is pretty much doing what it's doing. And he's the reason for the dysfunction. It looks like on the horizon they have uh, Peyton Manning coming in, uh, hopefully to take the place, the role of Jimmy Haslam as kind of the organization's final decision maker. And uh, as far as that development is concerned, I'm very hopeful for the possibility of anybody besides Mr. Haslam filling this role. Now, the way that this organizational flowchart was given to us at the outset of this organization's um, uh, <laughs> starting their process was that Sashi Brown was at the top and he was billed kind of as a benevolent capo- capologist, a guy who'd be a consensus builder. He was supposed to be the football guy. And at the time uh, it was introduced, I didn't see it. I didn't see the issue as I do now, but others did. The problem was that your football guy has to worry about player acquisitions as well as getting the team better. The problem is your football guy has to look his players in the face, telling them to put their bodies on the line with little or no chance of winning. The problem is your football guy is dealing with the realities of the factory floor. He's got to make it right with the media after losing these games. And he's made promises. Hugh Jackson has said he's not jumping in the lake. Maybe he can't swim. Maybe it's life or death for him. You remember a couple years ago when Patton introduced this team to the media. He uh, wanted to sort of define what his regime was going to do different than the previous regime. And he wanted to typify this or to encapsulate this with this slogan. And his slogan was, play like a brown. And you remember when you heard that for the first time, play like a Brown, you were, you were asking yourself, maybe you got more questions and answers with a slogan like that, right? I was thinking to myself, I actually don't want this team to play like Browns. I've been watching this team for the last 20 years, and playing like Browns is what they should actually not do. They should be doing the opposite of playing like Browns. They play, play like the Steelers, maybe. Play like the Steelers should be your slogan. That would have been good, right? I don't even know if people remember what Hugh Jackson's slogan was as he started because he actually had a slogan at the beginning of his tenure as the Browns were beginning to start on their new adventure in analytics. Hugh Jackson's slogan, if you don't remember it, it was this. He kicked off his 1-15 season with the slogan, Expect to Win. I'm sure you will never hear it again. Because when I watch the Browns, I literally do not expect to win. Certainly not this week, as we had to deal with the Jacksonville Jaguars. The Jacksonville Jaguars coming into our house. And I was expecting another line, another series, another in the series of a long line of signature defeats that we've all come to know so well. If you expect to win watching the Cleveland Browns, you should expect to have your expectations crushed. Because literally that's what's going to happen with this team. You know, a couple weeks ago, I was going to go in on Hugh for his decision to decline the face mask penalty. And I wanted to go on in on the team again you know, a week ago for the decision on the goal line at the end of the first half. And in another way, I wanted to go in on the team again for at the end of this half with 30 seconds just giving the ball back to the other team. I don't get that, you know. 
You're basically giving chances away for you to win the game. It's okay if you don't think you can actually manage these chances, but don't punt on the chances. Do your best you can to grow the team and do what you can to do what's right. To me, I thought that was a huge mistake and a huge situation that the team left in the field, which, uh, I don't know, in a close game like that could have meant something to the squad. You know, I look at these strategic mistakes, and I really want to go in on Hugh. I want to just, like, start blasting him, but... You know, as I take a step back and look, I have to look and see what this team has done as a whole and what he was meant to the team. And quite quite honestly, man, he has been everything to this team to the point where now I'm pretty sure that it's too much for him uh, to be to have such a large role on such a sh struggling organization. It's too much for him as it would be too much with anybody. This guy uh, has a lot of power, but you know, in in the in the depths of the cauldron, at the depths of that factory of sadness, he doesn't have the perspective enough to see a long-term view of what the team needs to get better. And I can't blame him for this. The problem is, Hugh Jackson was so far in that factory of sadness, in that factory of struggle, that he would have moved two picks that the front office has scrapped almost two years to attain for maybe two wins. For which uh, the production of these two picks that he's gaining is going to most certainly be replaced by the end of the year, only with even less draft capital to replace it. And what bugs me about the play is why didn't you do it earlier? They had a chance to do this at the beginning of the year where the depth might have made a difference for the outcome of the year. That, that made sense. But me, for me at the middle of the year, it would seem silly. And you wondered why the Browns were even considering a move like this. Well, it's pretty simple to me. It's because Hugh Jackson wasn't going to go in the lake. Hugh Jackson had had his fill of losing for the year. And which I obviously I can't blame him for that. I've had my fill as well. Well, like I said, Jackson had his fill of, of losing for the year. He didn't want to swim in the lake, Gary. It's not the team's fault. For people to describe the dysfunction of the Browns to the Hubris of Hugh, I kind of get that, but God, man, take it easy. I, I, I fail to understand how almost anybody could deal with this situation any better than he's done. But right now, um, yeah, rather than feeling like overly judgmental about what Hugh has done in the totality, I mostly start to feel sorry for what this guy's had to go through and deal with uh, throughout the duration of this really soul-crushing year for the Cleveland Browns. I mean, looking at this guy at the presser after the Jacksonville game, I mean, you see a man who is resigned to his fate. I see a man who's in the acceptance phase of the processing of the grief of losing. Uh, he's done with the bargaining. He's done with anger. The denial is over. And this is probably where I am right now as a fan. I'm at the point of acceptance. I mean, with the Jags. The Jags were talking about hanging 40 points on us and shutting us out. It kind of weren't that far from the second goal. But the fact that this game was close as it was, that's a huge tribute to the work of Hugh Jackson in keeping this team engaged through a really difficult season. You know, for all the blustering and all the bellowing that the Jacksonville Jaguars did. Really, honestly, on this day, they really weren't that much different than the, what, the, what the Browns were doing. I mean, you knew this game was going to be hinging on the advantage that the Jags defense would have over the Browns' inexperienced offense, that they would turn the Browns over, and that's pretty much how it played out. 
Jacksonville scored on the early pick. And without that field position advantage, I actually don't think they would have scored enough points to win this game. And then you get back to a serious look at this team and where they are. Especially compared to the Browns. You look at the record, now they're sitting at 7-3. and three. They won 7 out of 10 games this team did with Blake Bortles as their quarterback. And the one real difference between what the Browns are doing and what they're doing is at running back. They got a bell cow back like Leonard Fournette to tote the rock for their team. And the consistency that that gives allows you to pull back a little bit of the responsibility that you're offering or that you're you know giving to Blake Bortles. And, you know, really... Bortles sucks enough to cost his team games, but he, he never really got exposed in this game because of Marone and his insistence on running the football. And then you get back to that whole malarkey question that we were asking a couple of weeks ago as we played the Titans with Titan fans. They wondered if a guy like Malarkey was a coach, if they would be able to squeeze out a few wins. And I asked the same question with a guy like Marone. You see Marone with the team not... That's substantially better than what the Cleveland Browns are doing, as you can look at uh, with the performance of this Sunday's game. Yet, with a record uh, far, far, far superior to anything that the Cleveland Browns could hope for, and actually in a position to go to the playoffs right now with a quarterback like Blake Bortles. And as much as you'd like to be upset about game planning with the Cleveland Browns, and I think I'm appropriately miffed about the game planning with Hugh Jackson and also, some of the in-game management decisions that he's been, been having. You have to know how good it is that you're going to have a squad that's, that's going to fight with you in order to win, even at 0-9. And even at 0-9, these guys were legitimately pissed about what Deshaun Gibson had said. And they went out to fight. And that's part of it. I wish it was enough, because it isn't. But it's a good part of it. The team has to be ready to fight, and they are. But since they have less to work with in terms of talent... They've got to be well coached. And some of the things that they had to do were right. But I feel like they didn't at any point get the balls out of Kaiser's hand quickly enough in the passing game. And really, as the game wore on, this ended up being the key difference. The ball just took too long to get out of his hands. And over the course of an entire game and an entire afternoon, uh, this is really the difference between the Browns having a chance to win this game and not. You know, they kind of needed to do some of what they did in Minnesota and Detroit game. Uh, they, I don't know. In a game like this, I kind of feel like they, they missed Joe Thomas. Like I was talking to my buddy, and he was like, hey, surprised how well Drangle's holding up in this situation. And I kind of felt like in the Minnesota game and in the Detroit game, they kind of game-planned around the fact that they would have Everson Golson, Golson, Everson Golson, I think the dude's name from Minnesota, coming off the edge. Everson, I can't think of the dude's name right now. Anyways, that they'd have pressure coming off of the edge uh, against Minnesota, as well as have pressure coming off the side uh, with the guys coming out of, um, I think Zettel was his name, coming out of Detroit. And in this case, I feel like even though they had probably even as much of a significant threat coming off the edge, they didn't really adjust it in their game plan, and I felt like they just had Kaiser sitting back there a little too long with the ball in his hand, and as he got pressured, that's when the mistakes came up. You know, I think that in this game, you know, and even as well as that Titans game when he went down, 
The Browns missing out on Joe Thomas uh, was a huge, huge effect on this team. It's, it hasn't been like a straight-up disaster because Django has played relatively well. But when teams are sure that the Browns are going to throw the ball, they have the ab- advantage of being able to disrupt the, the Browns' passing game with a speed rush. Pretty reliably. And I am not sure that the reason that Jackson hasn't already gotten his win hasn't really had to do with his inability to adjust to losing Thomas. Like, I think at the beginning he did relatively well, but in the Titans game he didn't. I felt like at the same time in this game he didn't do it as well. There were times they could have run the ball, and I kind of think he did kind of stick with the run enough. It's just the short passing game, quickly getting the ball out to playmakers uh, in space, kind of stuff that he did a little bit better in, in the... Yeah, in the Detroit game. I felt like this just didn't happen today. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see going going forward if they're able to adjust to this stuff moving in the next few games. I, I've been saying, you know, I believe clearly. I think clearly Hugh has enough to win some of these games. Uh, but in terms of his game planning, I don't know if Hugh's willing to admit that he's making mistakes with this respect to his uh, whether or not he's winning or losing. You know, I've referred uh, a lot <laughs> over the course of this year to the Tao Te Ching about accepting disgrace willingly and accepting misfortune as a human condition. And I I noticed how Easy said recently in one of his shows that it's important for teams to be honest about what it is that they're doing. you got to be transparent about what's happening. And only then can you be trusted to learn and make the correct decision about What's going to happen in the future? That's the path of wisdom. The path of wisdom. Sometimes I wonder if Hugh Jackson is actually going to be able to make it there. Listening to Sashi as he talked about the team, I was more convinced that he was the kind of guy to lead the rebuild. At least a better one than Hugh, in my opinion. I mean, Sashi has definitely made mistakes in his tenure, as Hugh has as well. I didn't like the move uh, and the posture from prior. I didn't like what happened at free safety. I didn't like the wide receiver moves that he made as well. I was also a bit critical of the Osweiler move, particularly what he said upon getting Brock Osweiler. I thought that was a mistake for the Browns to make. To me, also, I felt like Sashi made a mistake in his previous presser around, uh, I would say, the fourth week of the season when he was a little cold on the work uh, that Hugh Jackson did in one of his press conferences. It was kind of insinuated that if he couldn't win any games, he might be done. Which, like I said, maybe that was a true statement to say just not what you needed to say in this kind of a cauldron of a situation. I, I, it just seemed aloof for Sashi. At the same time, you know, as though Sashi has made mistakes in his last press conference, He was as cool as a cucumber. He was very composed. He made a lot of great points. And I feel like he showed that he learned from the things that he'd done wrong. He was able, I mean, Sashi's actually, it's really cool to listen to the way that he does these press conferences because in some ways he's able to admit that he made a mistake without sounding like he's incompetent. And that's kind of an art form. I mean, kind of an art form that a lot of lawyers can have. Style of blandishment, a way of like, Making things sound in a way that, you know, that you're taking responsibility for things and that you're learning for things. And I feel like for sure Sashi has done this and what he's done, particularly in the way he's portrayed himself to the media. Now, whether Hugh 
just doesn't want to contribute to the media circus anymore. And maybe that's why he wasn't taking questions about what happened in the situation. But to me, there were a lot of unfluttering rumors going around during the, uh, the week of the debacle, the media debacle about the team. And, and to me, they were more than just like unsubstantiated rumors. They were redacted emails coming from the coaching staff to the media. Uh, your daughter, I put that daughter in quotes, <laughs> was on Twitter with your media mouthpiece. And there's a record of the conversation. And when the media comes to talk to you about it, you're not going to say anything. No, you're going to say something. You're saying that the truth is out there with these stories. And if you're not going to comment on it, that's probably because there's some truth to them. And the stories are probably as bad as they look, which are kind of bad. You know, if Hugh Jackson were to come over and take this team over at the end of this year for the first time, I'm not so sure that Jackson wouldn't be the right guy for this job. It's just these first two years. I don't know if there's a coach in the world worth his salt that would be able to weather 1-31 and 31 beginning to the re- regime. Not in this era of media, um, media proliferation. You're pretty much in a position where you're going to have to purge him just to get the image of him out of your head in the loop telling you that you didn't have enough to get the job done. I think at one point, people could no longer hear Pat Shermer say the word battle anymore. I mean, Patton started out 7-4. and four. He was smoking cigars, talking about getting paid, talking about how the sex was better in this pass-fail league. But then, after a 3-13 and 13 season, that dude looked like he is put through the ringer. And by now, Hugh has a look of desperation about him, and I can't say that I blame him. You know, they have really six games left. Meaningless one in Pittsburgh. They got to win two for Hugh to have a chance for him to keep his job. I mean, just to have a chance to keep a job. I mean, really, of these six games, all six of them are winnable. Just as winnable as the last two games that they've played. The team is 0-10 right now. And they still actually look hungry. I don't think they're going to roll over. But how confident am I that the team can suddenly win at a 333 percentage clip? (laughs) I mean, it's been the same all year. There's enough to win something. It isn't like they uh, have advantages all over the field, but they could win some games with the right coach. But is you the right coach? I'm forced in the course, even 0-16. But I can totally understand moving on at that point. If they got two wins, I could kind of be a little more vocal for keeping Hugh just because of how much better it would be to have the consistency, especially with a guy like Deshaun Kaiser going into his second year. Now about Peyton. Can the Browns bring in a guy like that, and can he actually seamlessly slide in and take the place of Haslam in this organization? That's something that could be interesting. I don't know. But I'm looking forward to this offseason to see how this one unfolds. Also, I just wanted to go on record. Please do not draft Baker Mayfield. Please do not. Please do not. Good Lord, don't. And with that, we can put this episode in the book. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to make the DBN part of your day. Well, that was your dose of the straight truth. You've been listening to Straight No Chaser. I am your host. Colonia 7, 
on the DBN Network. Leave a comment and take care. Gasson is kneeling at the 17, 37-yard attempt to kick his up. It is good. The Browns have won the game. The Browns have won the game in double overtime. 23-20, and the stadium is gone for sure. Hey, I'm Anil Dash, and I'm the host of a new show called Function from the Vox Media Podcast Network and Glitch. This season, we're talking with experts about why our voting machines are so bad and how that might hurt our elections. We'll also talk with an animator to find out how popular dances from the real world end up in video games. And we're going to tackle the biggest question in tech. Why do so many celebrities use screenshots from that Apple Notes app to make their public apologies when they screw up? You can find new episodes of Function every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks to Microsoft Azure for sponsoring Function.